Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Punk's a tawny Phil, the groundhog, buys into climate change, doesn't see his shadow, and so spring is just around the corner. In other stories on this 400th edition of the local news roundup, CMS ponders operations as $190 million in COVID relief, relief money ends. After weeks of dire warnings about low occupancy in uptown office towers, Charlotte Center City Partners' State of the City, of the Center City report describe or suggests tax breaks for developers may be necessary to cure what they describe as a cancer that will metastasize if left unchecked. A former North Carolina Supreme Court justice files a long-shot lawsuit to challenge redistricting. The drama over the Gastonia Honey Hunters continues. The new Panthers coach arrives in town and bars that serve food prepare for new regulations. Here to discuss those stories and more is Ann Doss Helms, WFAE's education reporter. Mary Ramsey is local government accountability reporter for the Charlotte Observer. Nick Oxner is chief investigative reporter and executive producer of investigations for WBTV. And Eric Spanberg is the managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Morning to you all. Good morning, morning Mike. Thank you. We should start over again because it's Groundhog Day, should we? No, I guess not. So for several weeks now, we've been talking about the vacancy rate in Charlotte office towers in uptown and across the region. The vacancy rate uptown is 29 percent. In other parts of the city, office building vacancy rates are between 30 and 48 percent, which, of course, led real estate expert Ned Curran to make this alarming statement recently to Charlotte City Council. A lot of these buildings just need to go away. And in recent discussions on this program about this, one of our panelists offered this question. When it comes to Uptown, where has Charlotte Center City Partners been in all of this? Well, this week they released their annual State of the Center City report covering Uptown and South End. What did it reveal? Who would like mm-hmm. to take that? Well, yeah. it, revealed, it revealed what we knew from not only that city council meeting that you played the clip from with Ned Curran, uh, but we've seen this happening for a couple of years. Uh, vacancy rates, particularly in uptown, have been two and three times their normal rates. And we're seeing this across the country. The office vacancy rates in the United States right now are the highest they've been since 1979. So no surprises here. But I do think that what this report does and the discussion around it does is it cements the idea that local business leaders and political leaders are gearing up to figure out how to come up with some kind of relief through public money in part to try and at least stem some of the damage. And despite all these vacancies and some of the other things that we'll go into in the next few minutes, Charlotte Center City Partners President and CEO Michael Smith is still pretty upbeat about the future. The vacancy levels that we're experiencing are not dramatic relative to our peers but they're dramatic relative to our history. They have to be addressed. Post-pandemic, hotels are full. Rising room rates are the quarter of the day. South End is experiencing record office leasing because most of that space is new. The problem is what's happening in the older buildings. The vintage office that we have in our community will be addressed in one of three ways. It'll either be demolished, it'll be leased, or it'll be adapted or reused. 
So there is greater supply than demand for these older spaces, and Smith says this may drag on for a while. If we do not address them, it will be an enduring challenge. We cannot count on market forces, and we can't use the economic development tools that we currently have. He says it's going to take a lot of new effort and new tools, and others agree with him. They warn that vacancies breed more vacancies, spreading like a cancer that has metastasized. And already, uptown vacancy rates are higher than they were during the Great Recession. What tools is he talking about that they need? Well, I think that what they're probably going to end up doing is they're going to look at uh, tax breaks, they're going to look at more flexible zoning so that you can use these office buildings for other things when that is feasible. I think those will probably be the first two areas that they look at. And the other thing, Mike, is that whether you're talking to real estate experts or people in city council, people in between, everyone knows that this is such a vast problem that you can't solve it. You just hope to lessen the damage. And the other factor that's looming out there is there's another 1.7 million square feet of office space leases that are coming up in the next 18 months. And when you have roughly 20 million square feet of office, but you can tell that's a significant amount, right? That's about to be added in the uptown area. So th this is going to be a significant problem. And the other, I guess, difficult part of this is you can't really look at other cities very much because they're all in the same boat. They're all trying to figure it out at the same time. You can't really go to Tampa and say, hey, how did you solve this? Because they're in the middle of it, too. Yeah. Uh, when he talked about tax breaks, is that what he was referring to when he also said we need more public investment to turn this around? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, they held, Charlotte Center City Partners held a design competition recently for ideas about what to do about these uh, buildings. What came out of that? Anybody? Well, they're looking at thing. Obviously, they're looking at a lot of amenities in these buildings uh, that you see in the new buildings. That's one. That's one of the reasons people are all flocking to the new buildings, and they don't want to be in the ones that are older. They're they're talking about things like childcare on site. Uh, you know, obviously, the more open. Uh, floor plans, uh, you know, just modernizing, for lack of a better term, these buildings. The problem or one of the problems here, Mike, is that that's expensive. It's not cheap. Uh, and then you've probably heard people talking about, well, you could convert it into housing or apartments, affordable housing. That works in some cases, but again, it's very expensive. Who's going to pay for that? And you get public subsidies to help do that. So there is, as Michael Smith said in that clip you played, th there is no silver bullet. It's going to take a combination of approaches. And I suspect there's going to be a fair amount of stumbling before they figure out exactly what the best solution to this is. And it works uh, for older buildings. By that, I mean buildings prior to the 70s, which were narrower for residential building because you have to have light coming into these apartments. Yeah. And these new wider buildings that came into being uh, don't allow for a lot of light coming into the back of an apartment. Nick, did you want to chime in here? Well, I was just going to answer your question on the design contest. That, uh, and a good example of the kind of building we're talking about is the old Wells Fargo building that they've now moved out of an uptown is one of the buildings that won the design contest uh, for its imagine. You know, they, you know, took a look and imagined how they were going to reuse that building. I think they're, you know, reimagining the first couple floors. They're adding, uh, changing the space on it. Uh, so that's the kind of building we're talking about. So when we uh, talk about, uh, he talked, Michael Smith talked about uh, older buildings. He said, he said hypothetically, 
If there were 10 older buildings that need to be repurposed, it would only be feasible to carry it out in, a, in something less than five of those buildings. The remainder would have to either be released somehow or demolished. Are we really going to see a time when they start taking down some of these office towers? Really? I, I don't know, Mike. And you know, I think you put, did, we've played that cut a couple of times that some of these buildings just need to disappear or go yeah. away. Uh, Ned Curran saying that I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but there sure is a lot to talk about it. So it, it's feeling maybe slightly more plausible. I, I think the, the likelier scenario is that the values go down so much that it becomes, you know, reasonable for somebody to buy it and invest in it uh, because they've paid so little for it. And if we go well, back far enough, some of us have seen, you know, implosions of downtown old buildings, but those were like, what, three or four story buildings. I, right. I don't think we've ever seen an office tower brought right. down. That's hard to imagine. And I'm not sure you can use a record ball, a wrecking ball for that. I think you have to implode it. A Center City Partners analysis of new buildings in the pipeline shows that a there's a 39% decline in Uptown and South End from last year's $6.9 billion forecast. You will see less cranes in the sky in every downtown. That'll be part of us as well. Okay, so moving on, North Carolina Junior Senator Ted Budd was in Charlotte on Monday, Mary, to talk about business across the region at an event sponsored by Charlotte Regional Business Alliance. What did he talk about? Yeah, he touched on a few different issues. Um, when it came to the Charlotte airport, he acknowledged that the Senate is dealing with some delays on their FAA reauthorization bill. Um, and talked a little bit about the impacts of that on the Charlotte airport. He said a lot of the, those delays have to do with negotiations over rules for pilot training, um, but that he's confident that a resolution will be reached soon. Um, spoke a bit about the importance of workforce development. And of course, the idea of transit came up. Um, City Council member Ed Driggs and Mayor Vi Lyles were also at the event. And the three of them all acknowledged that it's going to be really important to have a lot of intergovernmental cooperation in order to get the city's long stalled transit plan off the ground. And we're going to talk about that because there is not any intergovernmental uh, cooperation at the moment and hasn't been for years on this. We'll talk about that later in the show because it's a it's a puzzlement. Uh, CMS employees, parents, students, community leaders are all invited by Superintendent Crystal Hill to join her this week for what uh, she called her new think tank as she and her staff uh, work on a five-year plan to meet the school board's goals for improving student scores in reading, math, and preparation for college and careers. And one of the main focuses will be on, on retaining teachers in the face of a national shortage. So we're looking at some interesting, um, really innovative ways that we can support teachers either through rental assistance all the way to home ownership. So, Anne, did she offer any thoughts on how they might achieve that? No, uh, this is still the very early stages. I think she described it as going slow to go fast, you know, getting a lot of people looped into this. Um, it is a five-year strategy, and I think things like housing assistance would be a really nice extra, but essentially salaries are the big thing, and that's either the state and or the county. And both of those have been a pretty hard sell to get significant increases. Well, she said she's going to be pushing for higher teacher pay, better professional development, in addition to extra enticements like rental or home buying support programs. But if you raise teacher pay enough, do you need those programs? Well, I think that'd be a lovely position to be in where teachers could easily afford the housing prices in Charlotte. Um, 
I'm not betting on that happening within five years. And if you if you can't get the money to raise teacher salaries to salaries to that point, and you're having trouble putting pencils in classrooms, where are you going to get the money to provide money for home ownership subsidies and rental subsidies for teachers? I think the the rental and home ownership things would probably be private partnerships. She talked a lot about building stronger private partnerships. In fairness. Every new superintendent talks about better partnerships, um, restructures, uh, the, the administration. There, there are sort of some standard moves, and that's one of them. But she does have a good relationship with the business community and, I think, with county commissioners. So she may be in her honeymoon phase, but she has some leverage. But if it's going to be enough to really, you know, again, teacher pay is a, a very deep, long-lasting challenge. And she was talking about uh, making investments, big tech investments. What's she talking about there? A lot of it's kind of boring stuff that uh, we wouldn't see a lot of, either replacing laptops and devices to make sure that what people have is new enough to be usable, um, investing. There's been this whole thing we saw it play out in Gaston County with when they, they were like the first that got this new payroll and business systems. Um, many, many districts, including CMS, have really antiquated business systems. CMS says it's do or die time. We've got to start replacing it. The other thing that they mentioned, though, was artificial intelligence, which CMS had kind of taken a step back to wait and see. But uh, and you guys did a great show on that on Monday. This is becoming the topic in education. And after that think tank, uh, think tank session ended, CMS parent Kim Rose said she enjoyed hearing from the high school students who were there to speak and thinks that Hill was smart to ask others to review her team's ideas. She understands that they can have all these ideas, but if it doesn't work for the stakeholders, the principals, the teachers, the parents, the students, it, it's, it's not going to work in real life. A couple of other things to talk about from that think tank and other things that are going on at CMS, including this high anxiety that, Ann, you report is beginning to develop among those in the school system. We'll get to that when we come back with Ann Doss-Helms, WFAE's education reporter, Mary Ramsey with the Charlotte Observer, Nick Oxner with WBTV, and Eric Spanberg from the Business Journal. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. In Charlotte Talks on the Local News Roundup on 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins here with Ann Doss Helms, Nick Oxner, Eric Spanberg, and Mary Ramsey. So uh, uh, we were talking about the schools and the recent think tank that Crystal Hill held with CMS and parents and teachers and other uh, uh, stakeholders. She's also planning to reorganize folks at the top of the heap, you say, Ann. And the system's chief operations officer, Brian Schultz, is one of the few veterans right now in her so-called cabinet. He will retire in August. What's that doing? Is that part of the reason there's some high anxiety in the system right now? Yeah, there's always, you know, when you start saying we're going to change people around, either you might get a change or you might find yourself reporting to somebody new. So that's one of those internal things that maybe doesn't spill out to us too much. But now we've also got this budget coming up, and I, we're going to talk about that. I know I, I think one of our themes today is slow-moving things that are on top of us now, and one of those is the funding cliff. And it's not exclusive to CMS. It's not exclusive to schools. But the federal government pumped huge amounts of money into the economy to deal with the pandemic and its aftermath. It was never going to be forever. We knew the money was going to start drying up, and it is. So um, the 
people are really wondering in CMS, okay, what happens when tens of millions of dollars go yeah. away? And evidently, CMS has been experiencing some problems with making bonus payments ac uh, accurately and possibly, although we don't know this for a fact, producing end-of-year W-2s. And Crystal Hill points to the school system's antiquated computer systems. I'm terrified, to be honest with you, with starting it, but we have absolutely no choice. Our system is end of life. It will die in 18 months. That's a pretty darn specific death date, it seems to me. Uh, <laughs> Why, why is it going to die in 18 months? And is this comparable to what we've been talking about in the past about what's going on or has been going on in the Gastonia school system with computers? Well, what CMS is seeing is the end of the old system. And it's unclear. Um, I would add that one thing complicating this, and again, this all ties together, is that right now, in addition to their paychecks, a whole lot of employees are getting additional incentives and bonuses that are tied to this federal money. That complicates payrolls and paychecks. And again, I'm just starting to get bits and pieces from employees. We know there was one bonus foul up. I feel fairly certain there was a second one, relatively minor, where some AP teachers got their bonuses and others did not get them immediately but are getting them. Mm. Again, the W-2s, I think that's got to be terribly complicated when you have, you know, multiple patched together payments. And as complicated as that may be, nobody likes it when those payments go away. But the new system is what snarled Gaston County up. They rolled it out, and it did not work well for them. So that's what's ahead for CMS. But they say we're going to have uh, what they call a sandbox. There's going to be the new system in trial over here while we run the old system. They hope to avoid that kind of problem. Okay. And while all this has been going on, they're now having to grapple with the loss of COVID relief funding, which amounts to about $190 million. What has it been funding? Well, there are really detailed uh, charts. Some of it is one and done type stuff. Um, they've actually gotten more than $500 million over the course of this aid. Some of it's been spent. It was, you know, PPE, it was summer tutoring programs, but the big things that I think that are really complicated is, again, all these bonuses and supplements for bus drivers, for teachers in hard-to-fill areas. If those go away, it's going to feel like a pay cut. And they said that $60 million is attached to people. And it's not 100% clear what that means, but I think one example would be as substitutes became hard to find, they created a guest teacher program where they offered one-year contracts to people who would be stationed in a school all year, they end up hiring more than 500. That program is hugely popular. If nobody gets those contracts renewed, I think schools are going to be really upset about that. Well, surely this is not coming as a surprise. When Elise Dashu was the head of the school board, she said that they were facing this, her words, fiscal cliff, which kept her up at night. They have not been planning for this? They have been, and that's why... The CMS communications on this has been strange. Uh, Mary and I were talking about that. She was saying, well, I'm new to this. Is this normal? And I was like, no, it's not normal. They sent out a, a weird embargoed press release saying there would be a budget work session in six days about the funding cliff. Um, and it was in advance of a principal's meeting. So I think they have told the principals something that they expected to upset people and end up getting more queries. And they've spent the next few days telling us that they're not going to talk anymore until after this work session. So... I think they're going to present some numbers and, you know, there's two choices. You either just eliminate everything that the $190 million is being spent on or you get the money from somewhere else. The state has already approved a two-year budget. I can't imagine they're going to come in and 
do something big for the coming year. And that leaves the county. And the county, you know, I talked to George Dunlap. He said it's just way too early, but um, they're receptive. But they're not going to come up with $60 million in addition to everything else. So we learned this week that the number of criminal and violent acts in North Carolina public schools hit a 10-year high last year with more than 13,000 students or 13,000 incidents reported statewide, which was 2,000 more than the prior year. That's the bad news. The good news is that although... In the 2021-22 school year, CMS led the state in the number of guns reported in schools, 29 guns. Last year, CMS dropped way down on that list. Wake led that list. We're way down at the bottom of the pile. What happened? Any explanation? You know, that's a good that's a good thing to be at the bottom of that pile. And and in fairness, that was the bottom of, you know, the 11 highest. So many, many, many districts had no guns, which is great. Um, But yes, I I really don't think there has been a year that I've been covering this when CMS has not had more guns than any other district. And again, part of that is that it's large. But, you know, and every year we talk about we don't totally know why this happens. We know there's violence in the community. Uh, One thing we know that did not happen is the violence in the community did not go away this past year or so. Um, We've continued to have problems with young people using guns. So you can never prove absolute cause and effect, but two big things that happened were they installed walkthrough weapons scanners at middle and high schools, and they added this um, say-something anonymous reporting system. So, And we talked about this in a recent show where we said the crime is out there. Teenagers are shooting others and being shot, and that is still terribly disruptive to schools. But it's a really good thing if you don't have guns. And I had actually predicted there was a several hours gap between the overall report and the local data. And I had foolishly said in a news meeting, well, I want the context for the CMS guns, but usually what happens in CMS is happening statewide. So everybody's going to be down on guns. Eh, Wrong. (laughs) So I just I think that's fascinating that many districts saw more guns while CMS saw fewer. Well, here's something we talked about many times last year, and that is the fact that the state expanded its Opportunity Scholarship Voucher Program last year, and as expected, the number of students getting public money to attend private schools has now surged. Uh, What are those figures? They are, let me see, this year, as of mid-year data, um, there's a little over 32,000 students are getting scholarships to attend private schools. This is publicly funded scholarships, um, a little over 2,100 from Mecklenburg County, about 5,900 in our greater region. And that is about a 26% increase over the previous year when there was an income cap. There are people now who are eligible who were not eligible before, and the amount of money is greater. So it's much more enticing than it used to be. And, and so we'll keep our eye on how, what the impact that, uh, that may have on public schools around the state as the, as the time goes on here. But you report that among the 60 schools receiving this money is the Teaching Achieving Students Academy. And that is the school that you spent part of the summer trying to locate. <laughs> they received $42,000 for the current school year which brings their 10-year total to $483,000 from this program. Did you ever find that school? I have not. I have now checked six addresses for this school. Um, There were four out there in Charlotte last year. I went to all of them. I tried to contact people. Um, I eventually found another private school that said, 
well, we are leasing a room to the headmistress there, and she's doing something in that room. So we were kind of laughing about a school within a school. Um, but then immediately afterward, the founder of the school that was leasing the room said, we don't want her in here. We've evicted her. We don't want this tainting us. So they put two new addresses on file this year but while they're continuing to be in the voucher program. And the one that was listed as the physical location is in Davidson. I went there. It's a complex that has residential and small businesses. There are six units in that building. I walked to all three floors. I looked at all the signs. There are counseling services, financial advisors, um, a real estate agent. Nothing said school. I went at noon on a Tuesday when I thought there would be kids there. I couldn't see or hear any sign of kids. And the founders have been very vague about it. They just keep okay. So they've gotten forty-two. They've gotten forty-two thousand dollars for this current school year and four hundred eighty-three thousand in total over ten years. Does the state know where they are? Where are they sending the checks? Oh, I believe that they have a mailing address for the checks. There, there's a house in Concord that's listed as address, and there's this Davidson location that's listed as. So, physical location. And that's what the founders kept telling me is we have our paperwork in order. So when the you state talk, has been when very you, evasive. Well, the state's been evasive. That's what I was going to ask you next. When you talk to the state, does there seem to be no urgency at all about this could be a scam? Yeah. And it's I a lot of money. From, honestly, last year, I thought this was probably a communications problem. You know, a small school, it doesn't have a great website, doesn't answer the phones very well. This time around, I pretty much said to the school folks and the state, look, it really looks like you're sending checks to a school that doesn't exist. Show me I'm wrong. You know, show me that you know that there are students getting a full-time education there. And there's basically the state agency that registers private schools. And they said, look, they sent us a fire and a safety inspection on this address in Davidson. As far as we're concerned, they're okay. But, you know, the scholarship people do their own verifying. And the scholarship people said, no, we pretty much rely on the division of non-public education, but they said they are now trying to check to see if this school meets the requirements. So Nick, I feel it's an just assignment. Been a little bizarre. I feel an assignment coming on for you as the chief investigative reporter at WBTV. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's moving on to other things. A new state law mandates that area bars that serve food will soon have to change their operations and get a health department permit, uh, just like a restaurant. I thought all bars had to sell some sort of food if they were going to sell alcohol. So you're telling me, Mary, that all this time that we've been going to these bars and eating bar food that requires temperature and time controls, they haven't had to comply with any of that? Not exactly. So going back to 2022, the North Carolina legislature restructured a lot of the governance around bars and alcohol sales in the state. There were a lot of really outdated terms on the books going back to the days of prohibition, things like private clubs, things that you had to pay membership fees for. So the idea was to kind of modernize that structure. One issue that cropped up out of that was they inadvertently created this exemption where bars that were serving time and temperature controlled food weren't going through the same types of health inspections that a restaurant serving the same types of food does. So last year, I believe it was in September, state legislature passes a health care bill. They slip in something addressing this. Um, it took effect in January, but the state Department of Health and Human Services is now giving restaurants until mid-March to comply. And the Mecklenburg County Health Department is actively working with the affected bars here in the Charlotte area to get them on track. Um, they worked with the alcohol beverage 
Birch Control Commission came up with about 260 locations in and around Charlotte that they expect to be impacted. That number could fluctuate because some of these places might not be in operation anymore. That list might not include some newer bars that have opened, but they're in the process of getting everybody up to snuff so that they can continue to operate. And the plan is to inspect these bars that serve food that require time and temperature controls, to inspect them two to three times a year. Do they have the staff to do that? That's a question I asked County Health Director Raynard Washington, and he said he's confident that they do. Um, he acknowledged that in addition to this workload coming on board for the health department, we've also just seen a massive uptick in the number of restaurants in Charlotte in the last decade. And he said they've had good luck so far with going to county commission and getting the budget that they need in order to keep staffing levels where they need to be. So, yeah. So are we likely to see a change in the bar food available at some of these establishments because they don't want to have to deal with this. In other words, they could go to prepackaged, unopened, prepackaged food in addition to the drinks and be in compliance with the alcohol laws, but they wouldn't have to get the refrigeration and the inspections, et cetera. That is definitely a possibility. Health department officials told me that as they continue to do outreach to these bars, some are choosing to go through the full process and some are choosing to do what you said, scale back their food menu um, so that they don't have to take on the additional workload and additional cost. Um, for folks who are operating a facility that previously had a health department permit, um, they can probably get away with just getting inspections. But for facilities that didn't previously have a permit, they might have to do some additional work on their facility, bring in a contractor um, in order to file a plan with the county. So that could potentially be a great additional cost for these businesses. And yeah, health officials have told me that some are simply making the choice to scale back their menu. Okay, so last week, Charlotte City Council sounded as though they were willing to take a new look and scale back their ambitions on their $13.5 billion transit plan. The realities of a lack of support from the legislature apparently resulted in city staff rebranding the plan as a roads first plan, and City Council's Tarek Bakari agreed. Table the silver line for a dollar-based reason only. It is mathematically impossible to have what we're calling a roads-first plan and the silver line together. There's just not enough money. But this week, Shannon Bins, the founder of the local smart growth nonprofit Sustain Charlotte, urged business leaders to flex their muscles with local and state government and get on board with transit. Eric, what is he suggesting? <laughs> well, I think he's like a lot of people who support transit expansion they're frustrated because we've been talking about this for more than 10 years and it's really gone nowhere and they're desperately clawing at a solution uh you i spoke to the mayor this week and she said much as uh, mary mentioned as she said at that meeting with senator bud she said again that local governments have to work together and get on the same page but they haven't gotten on the same page and so uh shannon benz is hoping that maybe if business leaders speak up that can exert some pressure financial pressure elective pressure that may get this thing moving well shannon rightly points out that our transit system has not kept up with population growth but on the other hand ridership has gone down since the pandemic and has never recovered Fewer people are working uptown. That's why we have all these office vacancies. And all of the trains, the red line, the silver line, the blue line, they're all converging on uptown to bring people uptown. So what's his argument for business to push this? Well, it's interesting. You know, uh, Shannon Benz, like a lot of other people, will keep saying that 
people need uh, reliable transit to get to their jobs. Absolutely. That w I don't think many people would argue with that. But your point is one, Mike, that it's really interesting sitting in these meetings, including the, the council retreat, which Mary was there as well. They, they were having this huge debate and discussion. Nobody even mentioned hybrid work. Like No one has even mentioned the new patterns and the new ways that people get around. So I just think it's quite interesting that there's not even a, any kind of trying to morph the plan. I'm not necessarily saying roads versus transit. I'm just saying how transit works, where it goes and when it goes. That has not really been part of the conversation that I've seen. And there's another piece to this puzzle, and it really is a puzzle, and it involves the mayor at that uh, meeting with Senator Ted Budd. We'll come back and talk briefly about that, and also the lawsuit that's been filed by a former Supreme Court justice against the current maps, voting maps. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. The local news roundup has brought together Andos Helms, our education reporter at WFAE News, Mary Ramsey, the government accountability reporter for the Charlotte Observer, Nick Oxner, chief investigative reporter for WBTV, and Eric Spanberg, managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. And before we move on from transit and Shannon Bin's call for businesses to get on board this because everything has been moving so slowly, it's a puzzle as to why it has been. And Eric, you reported this week that Charlotte Mayor via Lyles, after having listened to remarks from Senator Ted Budd on business and growth issues in Charlotte for the Charlotte Business Alliance, which she spoke about earlier, she told you that it is still early to lobby the state's congressional delegation given the still unresolved aspects of the transit plan. My God, this has been going on since I was a baby, four years. <laughs> so what? why is it still too early? <laughs> Well, I think that the mayor's view is that until they get North Mecklenburg, until they get the surrounding towns and hopefully some sort of regional buy-in for this plan, they don't have a whole lot that they can say to the state, the state's congressional delegation. And uh, at the same time, they don't have a whole lot they can say to the state legislature. The week before at the retreat, Mike, she told Steve Harrison and myself that she hasn't spoken to Phil Berger or Tim Moore in the past year which I thought was uh, quite interesting given all the discussion that's going on. So you're right. Uh, it, it is uh, moving slowly, and that's probably a kind assessment. Yeah, and that's also interesting because at one point, Vi Lyles was kind of the darling uh, Democrat and legislative Republican leader of the hive. She had a lot of goodwill up there. And maybe she thought she could ride that goodwill um, into getting you know, transit funding, uh, when we saw the transit plan, quote, launched a few years ago, it had big fanfare and got promptly smacked down by legislative Republicans who said, no, we're not paying for this. Um, and, and so maybe that's why she's gun shy and going to Congress, too. I, it, but it, it is interesting why the city of Charlotte continues to talk about plans without vetting them first by the people that ultimately have to pay for them. I, I don't understand. And Nick, you're right. You know, the interesting thing of two things. One is when Vi Lyle supported bringing the 2020 Republican National Convention here, that did win a lot of uh, favor and grace from Republicans across the state. But as you look at the more recent conversations, Ed Driggs, who is obviously one of the two Republicans, he has been right there with the mayor saying, we need to do this. We need to build alliances. 
uh, and yet it's just really not moving. So we'll see. Well, it's being that it's Groundhog Day, it's probably a good thing to talk about things that are repetitive. <laughs> and and in North Carolina, we have a history of drawing very precisely gerrymandered voting maps. As we all know, racial gerrymandering is illegal. Partisan gerrymandering is not. And although they often overlap in this state, uh, our legislature has gotten extremely good at drawing partisan gerrymandered districts. And the state Supreme Court's conservative majority has made it clear that they will not be taking up any cases uh, dealing with partisan gerrymandering anytime soon. And in fact, they reversed a year-old decision by the previous liberal-leaning Supreme Court that struck down congressional and state legislative district maps that they deemed unconstitutional because of excessive partnership. The result is that those maps, those against those maps, I should say, have been filing suits alleging racial gerrymanders. But now, Something new has happened, and it involves a challenge filed by Bob Orr. Nick, he's a former Supreme Court justice. What is this one about? Yeah, this lawsuit, um, we can say it's new and novel, and Justice Orr certainly says that. But, I mean, it's along the same lines as the fight that we've had forever. Uh, but generally speaking, this lawsuit takes aim at three congressional districts of the state's 14, uh, out of the state's 14, uh, and says that there are too many uh, right-leaning voters uh, in addition to a state Senate district and a state House district. Um, Justice Orr told reporters that it's different because it it doesn't take a whole approach and doesn't challenge the entire maps. It, it's, it's specific to these three congressional districts and those two state legislative districts. And, there, and, and the, the grounds in which the lawsuit claims the Constitution is being violated is slightly different. Yeah. And then the last point here is that typically we'd see this kind of lawsuit filed in federal court. But again, one other novelty of this is it's being filed in state court. He says this is not about political parties. It's about individual voters and aims to protect an unenumerated right to free and fair elections, which he says are guaranteed by the North Carolina Constitution, but thwarted by these maps drawn by the Republican-controlled General Assembly and a Republican-controlled state Supreme Court. Whether the General Assembly government, you know, uh, can, can in essence put not just its thumb on the scales, but its foot on the scales. So does this argument have a chance? No. Okay. <clears throat> Let's move on then. Uh, the South Carolina Republican Party is uh, primary, rather, in South Carolina. It's the 24th of February, and Nikki Haley is going all in to beat Donald Trump in that primary. She launched $4 million in a TV ad campaign this week in the state, and she told Fox News that she is optimistic about her chances. South Carolinians are smart. They're tough. They expect you to do your homework and they expect you to do it. But I've won there twice. I know what it takes to do that and we'll do it again. Then she's also started to ramp up her criticisms of the front runner. I was proud to serve America in his administration. I agree with a lot of his policies. He was good at breaking things. You gotta be good at fixing things too. This is a time we've got to fix America. That's what we're focused on. And rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. So Mary, tonight she brings that message and her campaign to beautiful downtown Indian Trail, where she is appearing. What can we expect at that appearance? 
Yeah, this is all part of what the governor's campaign, former governor's campaign, has deemed the great day in South Carolina push, um, which for anybody else who spent time in the Palmetto State during her administration, <laughs> that should ring a bell. Um, really hoping to highlight her experience as governor of the Palmetto State, the work that she got done during her term and a half in office, um, and also continue to strike hard at former President Trump. But it remains to be seen whether that message will actually click in a state where the former president has always been very popular. I think I may have misspoken. I believe her appearance tonight is in Indian land, not Indian Trail, Indian land, uh, South Carolina. Uh, there is a group of about 25 Republican governors openly supporting Texas Governor Greg Abbott's refusal to comply with a U.S. Supreme Court ruling over the border security. Those governors are asserting essentially that the states created the federal government, implying that the states have the upper hand and they can just ignore whatever they choose to ignore. And in an interview this week on The Breakfast Club, which is a highly popular national radio show, Nikki Haley defended the rights of states to secede from the union if they choose to do so, which to me is completely disqualifying. Why would you run to be the president of the United States but say, you can secede if you don't want me to be your president? What is up with that? Civil War history has not been uh, kind to uh, former Governor Haley during this election cycle. It's a fine line that she's really been straddling since she was running for governor in South Carolina, trying to appeal to a more moderate brand of voters while also trying to get nominated as a Republican in today's day and age. It's very troubling that people don't know American history and they're running the government. Meanwhile, the North Carolina primary is on March the 5th, and in that contest for governor, Democratic Attorney General Josh Stein and Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson have raised millions of dollars more than their respective primary opponents. Stein has raised $5.7 million in the second half of last year. He has more than $11.5 million in the bank. Robinson raised... Uh, $3.4 million. Yeah. Uh, so I think he has about... 4.3 in the bank. What is that signal? I think it signals what most of us have expected, which is that it looks like a race between Stein and Mark Robinson in November. Of course, they still have to go through the primary. When you looked at the other candidates uh, for, on the Democratic side, former North Carolina Supreme Court Judge Mike Morgan raised $120,000. And uh, on the Republican side, Salisbury attorney Bill Graham raised $2.5 million, but $2.4 million came from a loan to himself. So, and and so while it, it's absolutely indisputable that Robinson and Stein are the front runners in their respective parties, it's interesting that both of them have these challenges that are not just nobodies, right? Uh, and I think it signals, uh, in some level, a bit of discontent within the party at both of their nominees. You know, I think we're going to have two juggernaut nominees who are, do not have 100% of from their parties. And that's going to be an interesting, interesting yeah. thing to see. Meanwhile, uh, former uh, South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch, uh, convicted for the double murder of his wife and son, was back in court and back on TV this week asking for a new trial. The judge denied him that trial. He was claiming that the clerk of court in the previous trial had engaged in jury tampering. The judge says they failed to prove that. Fill us in on what happened down there. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And it was interesting, the judge uh, speaking about that clerk of court who apparently told some of the jurors to watch Alec Murdoch's uh, body language while he was testifying. The, the, the judge sort of summed up the 
uh, appeal, if you will, that uh, Alec Murdoch was making by saying, quote, uh, the case could not be overturned on the strength of some fleeting and foolish comments by a publicity-seeking clerk of court, end quote. So uh, she was having none of it. And so uh, this is going nowhere. Of course, there will be further appeals. But remember, Mike, there's also a separate 27-year sentence uh, that Alec Murdoch is serving uh, for stealing $12 million from his law firm, and he cannot, as part of that plea agreement, uh, appeal that verdict. Well, stay tuned. That show will continue uh, on television and in the courtroom near you. Uh, the CEOs of the major social media companies were on Capitol Hill on Wednesday to testify over growing concerns that companies like Meta, which runs Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and X, aren't doing enough to protect children. And the audience in that hearing room was filled with parents of children who had committed suicide or who had other harm done to them or to themselves because of the use of those platforms. In fact, South Carolina State Representative Brandon Guffey's son, Gavin, died in June of 2022 after falling victim to a sextortion scheme. And it's a story that South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham shared during that hearing. And when he spoke to Mark Zuckerberg, when he challenged Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and Instagram, he was greeted with cheers from the audience. Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. These platforms are completely unregulated and have been since their inception, and our laws governing technology and the Internet are woeful in this country when you compare them to other nations around the world and the European Union, places like that. Is, is this just showboating, or might something come from this hearing, finally? Well, I don't know if this particular uh, instance was showboating or not, but... All the previous years were, Mike. I mean, we've been talking about Section 230 and the difference between uh, being a platform versus a content provider for years and years and years. And nobody, Democrat, Republican, has done anything about that at the federal level. So uh, going on past history, I don't expect a lot to change, but maybe this time will be different. Well, it does seem, though, it, yes, true, all good points, right, because how many times have we seen hearings like this, except— it was a rare bipartisan sense of outrage at, at this hearing this week in the Senate. And, um, you know, we've now seen lawsuits filing, uh, school districts filing lawsuits against social media companies now for the mental health harm that they're causing uh, their students. And so we see more and more new and different tactics being employed to try to address this problem. And if anything, what might happen is the amount of scrutiny and pressure will force the social media companies to, to start regulating themselves in the face of no other regulation. And I think that's probably the, the, the more likely scenario, Nick. That's right. So Panther fans were all aflutter this week about the uh, new coach, Dave Canales. He arrived in Charlotte midweek. He and new Panthers general manager Dan Morgan held a press conference on Thursday, yesterday, where they laid out a plan, well, Morgan laid out a plan and shared his idea of the types of players he wants to sign. First of all, we, we, we need to find those leaders, those competitors, as Jay Stu would say, those dogs. Like, we need some dogs. Like, we got to get some guys that are passionate about football, that love football. They want to come out every day and compete on the practice field, in the weight room, 
We need competitors. We got to bring that back here. We got to bring that back here to Bank of America Stadium to where people get excited about coming to see our team. And this was all part of a press conference to introduce the town to the new coach, the new head coach, Dave Canales. This is his first head coaching job in the NFL. He spent one season last season as the offensive coordinator in Tampa. And here's how he described his part of the plan for success. Defense, go take it away. Offense, let's take care of it. And if we do that, the statistics say we're going to win a lot of games. Um, I saw it happen firsthand in Seattle. So, um, and beyond that, you know, just uh, the aggressive nature, the fast play, um, we'll put them in difficult situations and practices so that we can become a really smart football team. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those things happen in practice. Practice is everything. Practice is where we become us. It's also how you get to Carnegie Hall. Uh, is that part of the plan, too? <laughs> <laughs> Going to are, Carnegie Hall? I don't know if that's yeah. part of the plan. <laughs> are, are fans excited about this? <laughs> Well, I don't. I think they at least have a little bit of new hope because you have a new regime. So, uh, to be determined, Mike. <laughs> to be continued. finally a retirement to note: Tom Bartholomew, who was uh, one of this area's biggest consumer advocates for over two decades, finished up his stint as president and CEO of the Charlotte Better Business Bureau. He went to work for the BBB right out of school. Arrived here in two thousand one, and if you watch television. You've probably seen him a thousand times with warnings about various consumer issues and tips on how not to be a victim of scams and what to do if you are. You get into the work and you see the good that you're doing uh, for folks and the difference that you can make and you're going, you know, why would I do anything else? Yeah, Tom Bartholomew speaking with WSOC-TV's Jason Stijenki and when Jason asked him if he'd missed the job, true to form, he gave an honest answer. He said... Pieces and parts. <laughs> Have a great retirement, my friend. Have a great retirement. We're going out with the uh, Groundhog Day theme. Yeah. What a better day. Andos Helms from WFAE News, Nick Oxner, WBTV, Mary Ramsey from the Charlotte Observer, and Eric Spanberg from the Charlotte Business Journal. Thank you all for the hour. You got me. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlottetalks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.